Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It is June 14th, 2021, Flag Day in the United States of America. So if you have a flag out front and you want to step out on the stoop and give it a quick uh, salute in honor of the day. I'm Bill Nygut. Awfully glad to have you here with us for Political Rewind. We have a terrific panel for you. I want to get right to introducing them and start our conversation. Uh, it's Monday, which means uh, Jim Galloway who has now stepped down from his long-time job as political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but continues to know as much about politics as anyone I can think of in the state of Georgia and well beyond. Uh, good morning, Jim. Nice to talk to you. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, we're joined today. I'm really delighted. Uh, we have two political scientists on the show today, both of whom have had really distinguished careers. I will say Charles Bullock, the Richard B. Russell Chair of the Political Science Department of the University of Georgia, as well as a distinguished professor in the uh, School of Public and International Affairs, is certainly one of the acknowledged uh, longtime experts on Georgia politics, deep, deep historical knowledge, the author of, I think, some 30 books if I'm right, Charles, and we're really uh, thrilled to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. I'm great to be with you. you and we're joined by a, a co-author of yours, as a matter of fact. Uh, we're joined by Professor Karen Owen, a professor of political science and director of the Thomas B. Murphy Center for Public Service at the University of West Georgia. Uh, she has um, a, a number of publications, including her book, Women Office Holders and the Role Models Who Pioneered the Way. And Karen, you and Charles collaborated on a book which has special resonance today because we'll talk later in the show about the fact there are two special elections for the state legislature. And you and Charles co-authored a book on special elections, right? We did, and it was released this year. And the book really looks more specifically at the 6th District special election race here in Georgia that was in 2017. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, all right, we're going to start the show by talking, in fact, about mm -hmm. elections. Um, Jim, uh, over the weekend, <clears throat> excuse me, news broke that the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, uh, in a speech that he gave to a group of uh, civil rights leaders and others, uh, announced that he is going to double the size of the voting rights team at Department of Justice and look very carefully at election laws, new election laws, and existing election laws in states across the country. We assume that will include Georgia's new laws, um, among other ways in which he wants to address concerns about voting in the United States. Before we talk about it, let's listen to a quick Short soundbite from uh, that Merrick Garland speech. Today I am announcing that within the next 30 days, we will double the division's enforcement staff for protecting the right to vote. We are scrutinizing new laws that seek to curb voter access, and where we see violations, we will not hesitate to act. We are also scrutinizing current laws and practices 
in order to determine whether they discriminate against black voters and other voters of color. Particularly concerning in this regard are several studies showing that in some jurisdictions, non-white voters must wait in line substantially longer than white voters to cast their ballots. Uh, Jim, the Attorney General, also in that speech, announced that they will be scrutinizing uh, 2020 election audits, one of which, of course, is underway, has been underway for some time in Arizona and has been enormously controversial, and which could get underway depending on whether the courts uphold a previous ruling in Fulton County's absentee votes, and there are Georgian Republicans who want to expand the audits here in the state for the 2020 election as well. Uh, Jim, one other quick note. Uh, Garland in that speech really went over the history of efforts by the federal government to protect the rights of people of color to vote and certainly uh, singled out what he considered a, a bad decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in Shelby v. Holder, which took away preclearance as a, a requirement for states like Georgia that have had history of discriminating in voting rights in the past. Jim? Right, right, and and uh, the 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 bill named after John Lewis uh, that's supposed to be coming out of the House late late this uh, fall uh, is is supposed to is is aims takes aim at uh, reimposing the preclearance uh, uh, section lost lost uh, when the Supreme Court handed down that decision. I am uh, it's it's interesting uh, that that uh, he Garland Garland focused on on access to uh, voter registration and access to the polls, uh, which of course has been the traditional arguing spot uh, and, and, and the, the, the uh, traditional hotspot for, for uh, uh, voter suppression or, or, or voter control uh, or vo voter security if, uh, if, you're, if you're a conservative. What, what I didn't hear addressed were these structural changes that many states, including Georgia, have taken that really gives the 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 the, the, the a, a GOP controlled legislature final say over approval of of the election results, and and that's what's uh, if if you you know if 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 you listen to the chatter that's going on right now uh, uh, on the on on the topic that seems to be getting a lot more attention right now than than other aspects of of uh, Republican uh, uh, activity across the nation. Charles, I am assuming that, first of all, I think it's noteworthy that the U Attorney General of the United States uh, and the, and has said, we're going to look at these new laws. I mean, we have states across the country, we know, in Republican-controlled legislatures where they have passed uh, numerous laws that many people think are going to, in fact, make it harder for people of color to vote. So the fact that Merrick Garland steps in at this point and says, we're going to look at this we're going to scrutinize it carefully, and I assume paint with a broad brush so that he could, his department could look at the kind of thing that Galloway is talking about, states trying to preempt what local election uh, boards do and how they decide the outcome of races, Charles. Well, it's only possible, yeah. It's interesting that what he stressed goes back to the elements of Section 5, the part that has been invalidated as a result of the Shelby County case. And the way it was originally written back in 1965 was to look exclusively at ability to register and ability to turn out. Now, it gets broadened very greatly in 1969, and that's what then brings in anything which touches on uh, 
elections and made it subject to Section 5. But now uh, any litigation which is brought by the, sec- by the Attorney General will be under Section 2. And what's important here is who has the burden of proof. Now, under Section 5, the submitting authority, in this case, uh, Georgia would have had to have submitted the new laws that SB 202 and to have gotten federal approval either from the Attorney General or the District Court of the District of Columbia before it could have implemented any of those elements. Well, that's not the case now because Section 5 is no longer operable. So now the burden of proof would be on the Attorney General to prove that these new proposals would have a discriminatory effect, and that's that's difficult in that there is no data yet. You know, you aren't going to know what impact these things might have until you have an election. So any litigation brought now would be speculative, as it would have been under Section 5, but at that point, the Attorney General wouldn't have to have had to prove his case. He simply would have said, no, we don't think what Georgia is doing is acceptable. Now he must come up and prove that what Georgia has done would be discriminatory. Um, that is a really uh, shifting the burden of proof, Karen. That, that really frames the argument very, very well here, I think. Karen, weigh in on this. So I think that's true. And I think two things I think of is timing, right? So this decision about expanding those within the Civil Rights Division who can look at these laws is looking at the time of how, like, SB 202 was passed here in Georgia, how other states are also doing this, but we're also, each state is gearing up to look at redistricting, which has also been scrutinized um, through the Voting Rights Act and different measures. And I think it will be interesting to see, since over the last few years we've seen liberal activist groups who have really focused on redistricting and, and putting money towards redistricting efforts. And if this is, in some ways, these groups are going to be freed up a little bit more to look at other state political purposes because the federal government now will be having resources and more resources to look at what state actions are going to happen, not only under these voting reforms, but also with redistricting. Um, Jim, one of the other things, in talking about the audits, that the, the attorney general said, look, there are, there are audits underway in some states, Arizona being the prime example of that right now. And Garland uh, went out of his way to say one of the concerns the federal government has about the audits is who's got control. It's ballot security. In the Arizona case, um, the, uh, the Republican-controlled legislature subpoenaed the, the actual ballots uh, that had been cast in the 2020 election, took them under their control, working with a private vendor uh, brought in by the Republicans to do the audit, and uh, the Democratic uh, uh, Secretary of State in Arizona now says, we got to have all new ballot voting machines. What they seized was the voting machines themselves, and she said, we can no longer trust the chain of evidence in our voting machines. Garland made it clear that concerns him. So far, the audit that will happen in Fulton County shouldn't have that problem, I think. Right, right. And 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 what they subpoenaed were all the voting machines in Maricopa County, the the the, yeah, the, the most popular Thank county. Thank you for specific. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and and so and so those machines are now open to to are, are now subject to, to questions about their uh, 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 about whether they can, uh, you, you know, it. it 
it breaks the chain of evidence, you know, that the Republicans so often want to want to protect in, in voting issues. You know, it, it's uh, I know you all, you, uh, you folks talked about it last week, Bill, but I thought the, the trip that that uh, Georgia GOP Chairman David Schaefer and State Senator uh, Burt Jones and uh, 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 Brandon Beach Brandon took Beach. to yeah. took to took to. Uh, took to Arizona to to kind of do a walkthrough of of this audit. It it illustrates to me it illustrates the the uh, the fact that this is all again this is all Donald Trump driven. Uh, these 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 gentlemen want to be seen uh, 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 as part of Donald Trump's uh, favored operation right now, which is these audits. So I think you're going to see. You're going to see more of them attempted in Georgia. I don't know how far that's going to get. It's certainly, they won't be. They will. They won't have any effect on on the outcome of the elections. But uh, now, it's. I want to see what happens. We have a special election coming up. Uh, I think you mentioned at the front of the store two, two uh, show uh, two special elections. I want to see if if, if we're going to if this 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 demand for audits uh, extends to those races. Uh, yeah. I think that's a good question. We do have two special legislative elections. Uh, we'll talk more specifically about them in a little while. But, but uh, Karen, one thing to say at this point about those two special elections is though uh, even it's the 34th uh, district and the 156th where there are special elections. And it's interesting that both Fair Fight Action and Kelly Leffler's new conservative voting rights groups have really mobilized to try to turn out votes in what are probably going to be small turnout elections. And one of the things that Kelly Leffler's group has already said is we have to guarantee election security in this race. Clearly, Karen, this isn't going to be an ongoing theme, particularly of Republicans, uh, all the way through 2022 and beyond. I think you're absolutely right. It's part of both parties' messaging, right? The Republicans are going to talk about the security, and then the Democrats are going to talk about voter access. I think interesting, you know, Jim mentioned those three state lawmakers who traveled to Arizona, and I think part of this is probably political ambition, right? Where are they wanting to go? Are they wanting to run for statewide office, or are they thinking even about a congressional run? And so it's part of that, where are they going to align with Trump? Is Trump still going to be talking about matters going into more 2022? And then I think... um, as well with the auditing, it, it will expand in Georgia. Are there more groups that are going to keep talking about what is happening here in mm-hmm. Georgia? And it aligns with what these politicians want to do with their own careers and the messages that they want to put out to certain voters that they know are listening to each of the arguments about voting and the security of that vote. Charles, jump in. Yeah, and they, uh, this ballot security issue on the Republican side goes back at least to the adoption of the photo ID requirement, which was initially about 2005, as I recall. So what Republicans have learned is that raising questions about the viability of our electoral system plays very, very well with their constituents, and that gets people fired up. There's no evidence to support claims that our electoral system today or even in the recent past has been that easily corruptible. Now, yeah, if you want to go back to the 1940s, absolutely. But contemporarily, not so. And on the other side, as Karen suggested, uh, Democrats can also play this uh, from a very different angle. And that is uh, what Republicans are trying to do is to keep Democrats from getting to the polls. And that 
as Stacey Abrams has demonstrated, is a very effective message in, dem- in mobilizing Democrats. Put this in a somewhat broader context, uh, talking about audits continuing to look at that 2020 election is by definition backward looking. Uh, the Republican Party seems to be incapable of moving forward. And if this continues to be their stance as we get into 2022, where their emphasis is on the election was stolen a couple of years ago and things need to be done to patch that up, then they leave the field open for Democrats to be the only ones talking about here is what uh, a new governor, if elected, or a new legislature if elected, would do. And so to some extent, I think that this emphasis that Republicans continue to put on the path probably works to the benefit of Democrats going forward. Uh, hey Chuck, let me let me if I, if I could jump in and ask you to, uh, a, a question that just su- suddenly popped into my head. Okay, and, and going back to the Merrick Garland investigation, uh, Reuters over the weekend came out with a just a just a, a terrific piece uh, uh, with some new information on what happened in Georgia in, uh, in in December after the November third presidential primary, and it focused on on Tricia Raffensperger. Uh, the wife of, of Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, who uh, told uh, uh, told Donald Trump no when it came to uh, to finding those eleven thousand votes that he wanted. Uh, there were death threats. Uh, uh, local election officials uh, are, are say that they have likewise been threatened. Uh, they they likewise were threatened in the uh, in the period after the election. Is that something? Uh, Garland, is, is there anything in the Voting Rights Act that would cover those kinds of actions that would that would uh, invite uh, Merrick Garland into in, into the situation? Uh, I think the, I think the Voting Rights Act is broad enough to do that. Yeah, that one could argue that that uh, prevents the carrying out of the election function. That if indeed election officials feel so intimidated that you know you, you you dare not report what the honest count is because you think it may endanger your life or the life of your family, then there'd be a potential incentive for an election official, especially for a very close election, to put his or her thumb on the, on the scales and say, no, actually, uh, it was went very narrowly for the other side. So, yeah, I think that, that uh, the legislation is broad enough to protect that. And we also know, again, going back to that uh, interlude between November and January, Gabe Sterling was also threatened, as well as, uh, again, he came forward with the threats that were launched, I believe, at a low-level election official in Gwinnett County, as I recall. That's what prompted him to give that speech, which got so much coverage. Yeah, we're, here's, what, uh, here's some, some quotes from uh, Jolt this morning, actually, in terms of the threats that have now become public. Raffensperger's wife, Tricia, received an anonymous text on April 24th, saying, quote, you and your family will be killed very slowly. She canceled regular weekly visits in her home with two of her grandchildren. Uh, Intruders broke into the home of her daughter-in-law, who is a widow. Um, That's just one of the examples. Mm -hmm. During a meeting, uh, investigators with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office sought information on threats uh, uh, targeting Fulton County staff and there were something like 150 hateful calls to Fulton County elections uh, between uh, Christmas and early January. Uh, it, it, so it, it goes on and on. But um, Karen, uh, I'm interested in pursuing just a little bit what Charles Bullock had to say about 
the backward look by Republicans perhaps accruing to the benefit of Democrats moving forward. And I think what's fascinating about that is if we know, and we do, that all of this focus on stolen elections, fraudulent elections, really is driven by Republicans who remain in the sway of Donald Trump, how long is that tail? By 2022 and beyond, 2024, if Republicans can't come up with policy positions, with ideas for governing, how long is Trump's tail going to keep them uh, competitive in election races? We don't know, but it's interesting to speculate about. Well, I think definitely the conversation nationally may be a little bit different than here, specifically maybe in the state, is how the Republican Party. But I think what we're seeing is more of this just internal division. Is there going to be the sect that continues to discuss Trump and that the election was stolen and those who are trying to move on? And then, they're, you know, kind of their, um, I guess, the, the beatings that they're getting, that they're trying to put forth policy areas and, and to have discussions on that. It is interesting, I think, that when we kind of going back to the AG's involvement, that if I'm, I'm correct, that the paper put out this morning that uh, Kent and Attorney General Chris Carr have somewhat welcomed that the Attorney General can look into Georgia and look at the law. They have not come out against this idea, but I think they are making a stand knowing full well that they're running in 2022 and maybe trying not to get caught in such division, but trying to maybe bring at the state level, say, yes, look at our um, voting law, what we're doing, and then going back to their message that it was very much to make it easier to vote and that they're trying to stop any type of cheating. I can't remember that exact phrase, but um, that message that they do want to put out. And so it may be different. They may be taking a little bit of a different stance than the three lawmakers that were mentioned earlier that went out to Arizona. So again, I think it's just the internal division of the party and who's going to really take the stand and lead and really be bold and leading what a forward vision would be instead of being stuck here in the muck of 2020, 2021. And to build on what Karen just said, yeah, somebody, some Republicans are going to have to come forward uh, and openly criticize Trump and win. And if, once that happens, then you reveal that, that Trump has feet of clay and you move forward. But you know who's going to step forward and do it? Well, one might have thought, say, a month or two ago, Jeff Duncan might have taken on that role. But since he's not running for re-election, it's not going to be him. But that's what it's going to take is someone to show that you can run against Trump and nonetheless get the Republican nomination before you're going to see people beginning to push back against the former president. Charles, before we get off this subject and uh, take our first break, one of the books that you wrote was The Triumph of Voting Rights in the South. Um, I'd I'd love to take advantage of your historical knowledge for a couple of minutes here and talk about where you think we stand today in the aftermath of the new Georgia election law that uh, Brian Kemp signed at the end of the session in terms of that long history of voting rights, in as particularly as it pertains to the South. Yeah, if we go back, and again, <laughs> at least someone my age, it's not ancient history, uh, but we go back to the time that the 65 Voting Rights Act was adopted, the estimates are that fewer than one in four African-American adults was registered to vote in Georgia. At that time, the figure is, I think, that there were three African-American office holders in the entire state. All right, so uh, where are we now? Well, African-American registration rates are pretty much in line with their share of the adult population. 
And in terms of number of office holders, uh, you know, I don't think anyone has an exact count, but we know that there are four members of Congress, that there are dozens and dozens of state legislators, and as I say, probably almost innumerable uh, elected officials. So, you know, to, to say that uh, SB 202 is Jim Crow 2.0, uh, it doesn't really mesh well with, with the history, with the kind of change which has come about. I mean, it may create some obstacles. It may not. Again, we aren't going to know until we get through an election. But you know, anyone who has any knowledge of history has to acknowledge that there's been dramatic changes, and indeed the kind of changes that if you'd ask a lot of white elected officials, oh, what are we talking about now, about 60 years ago, could this come to be? They would say, oh, no, it simply is impossible that uh, we're not going to see African-Americans participating on an equal basis with whites within, within Georgia or anywhere in the South. And we clearly have, have achieved that, that status today. Jim, uh, I, I do need to get to a break, but, but I want to follow up on that. Um, on, on our show last week, Bernard Fraga, political science professor at Emory University, who does a lot of work with uh, data and elections, um, he made the, the point that, uh, and it's basically kind of Charles is saying essentially the same thing. We, you know, everybody's taken sides on the Georgia election law. I mean, you know, it's black or white, the election law. It's either going to suppress the vote or, in fact, it's a beautiful thing for election security. Fraga makes the point that there are so many components to this law uh, that it, you, and they are so interlocked that until we have some data, we're not really going to be, and even then, we're, it's going to be hard to tell whether this overall law suppresses uh, the votes of minorities or doesn't because there are so many pieces to it. And I think that's an important point to keep in mind with, we, with these discussions. Right. I, I agree. One, I agree. One, one of the uh, more uh, telling aspects of, of SB 202 was the fact that nobody actually knew what was in it until the final versions yeah. were, 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 push, uh, were pushed out. Uh, and one does, it, it was not the work of a single hand or a single mind uh, that behind which there was, there, there was a great deal of agreement. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, and, and which is why we have, we, we've had that focus on some of the simplest aspects of 202, like the fact that it would ban, uh, ban the, the, the distribution of, of water and food in, in polling lines by, uh, by people other than election workers. So, so there, there, I think Chuck is very right on, on this. We have to see how it works and how it plays out. Uh, the problem is, it's uh, uh, there's a great fear that it, uh, that among Democrats that it'll it will play out the right uh, the wrong way. Uh, and and I think what it, while I agree with with Dr. Bullock about uh, uh, about the immense progress that that has been made, I would also just posit that that every advance has resulted in a backlash. Uh, it's been in, in the South. It's been two steps forward and one step back, and and what we are now seeing is the backlash. Uh, Karen, finally, before we get to this break, if it's possible that there are so many interlocking pieces to this law that we can't quite tell whether it's suppressed or not suppressed the votes in its entirety, we do have a couple of tells, as you would discuss in with a magician's card tricks. Number one, what first the reason for the law in the first place, the reason the bills were introduced. For, the allegation of massive fraud that needed to be 
uncovered. Well, there was no massive fraud in Georgia, so election laws to assure that there won't be really didn't have any basis in fact to begin with. And I think one of the other ones, Karen, was the effort that finally came unwound because it was so egregious was the effort to stop Sunday voting, which we know was a, an effort to keep African-Americans who vote in, you know, in church groups uh, at the polls. Those two things, I think, more than anything else, tell us why we ought to be a little bit uncomfortable with these, this law. Well, and I think to Jim's point, right, the law changed through the process, and we didn't know what the final version was until the end. So each player who wants to drum up turnout or drive a certain message latched on to the debate that was going on through the process of writing this voting law. And so information was coming out that it was going to do certain things, but the final version then allowed for this Sunday voting to still take on, but the message had already been put out that it was, you know, going to be um, affecting minority communities and it was to be targeting them. But the end result was that some counties now in Georgia actually now have that option for Sunday voting and they didn't have it in the past. And I think, as you know, I teach students, Dr. Bullock might agree with this, is when we talk about legislative process, you have to see the process play out. Legislators are going to debate certain provisions, and you hope that the final version that comes out is really what the state and the national government or the people need, um, but you have to get through that process. And it will be interesting to see what plays out. We may talk about the special election, but that's a really small snapshot of an election to really see if we can see the results of this new law. It will probably really be the general election of 2022 where we understand what the effects of this law are. Okay. All right. Um, I, I, I'm late for a break. If you, if the three of you would stop being so interesting, I could get to a break sooner. But you're all making such great points that I keep delaying it. I can't any longer. Let's get to this uh, this break, and we'll be right back with more. Jim Galloway, Charles Bullock, Karen Owen uh, are on Political Rewind with me today, and I'm very glad they are. Karen Owen, let me start with you on this segment. As uh, we mentioned before, we do have special two special legislative elections that are going to happen tomorrow in Georgia. We expect pretty low turnout. One is in House District 34, where the incumbent, Burt Reeves, is stepping down, and... Um, Karen, uh, it's interesting. The other is in House District 156, where Greg Morris is uh, giving up that seat. We can talk about them separately, but as we discussed before, uh, Karen, it's fascinating that while turnout in this kind of special election is terribly low, we haven't talked about it on the show. There hasn't been a lot of media attention for these races. Uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, are mobilizing to treat these elections maybe as a preview of how they're going to try to gear up for 2022, Karen. Yes. So if we look at House District 34, that's in Cobb County, and you have five candidates, uh, two Democrats, and then um, I think Libertarian and two Republicans running on the ballot, and you're right, turnout in these elections are typically lower. Um, It's been about a six-week election cycle, I think, for these special elections once they were announced. So it really is about your party and the ground game you can actually mobilize. And we're talking state house district races here. So messaging 
um, is very specific. But I think mm -hmm. what we will see, in my understanding from both races where I've talked to some candidates, is they even have questions coming in from the national side. So what does it mean? Like we've just been talking about, you know, about the election law. But also uh, going back to like First Amendment and Second Amendment conversations and what, you know, these candidates stand for on, uh, you know, free speech or religious liberty or the Second Amendment. Um, I think Jim may know more about the Cobb race, but uh, I believe one of the Democrats has the endorsement of Governor, former Governor Barnes. And then one of the Republicans has had an endorsement by the Public Service Commissioner, uh, Tricia Pride more. So, you know, there are some that uh, in the state weighing into this race. House District 156 election, that's down in South Georgia with Toombs, Montgomery County, and parts of Athlone and Jeff Davis counties. There are three candidates running there uh, Lisa Hagan, Wally Sapp, and Wright Grace. And, and I'm interested in these elections, and I'm just honestly because of the women running. And I think this is a trend we have seen since 2018 where more women are engaging in the process. Um, Democratic women had a great success, had great success in 2018. And in 2020, we saw Republican women have great success nationally. And I think it's just kind of filtering down into the states. And I would argue that we're seeing women have examples to follow. And so that's what we're seeing in these elections where women are taking a stance and running um, to put a, a new message out and, and to be a new voice at the table. Uh, Jim, of course, both of these seats will again be up in uh, 2022. These will fill those seats. So the, the, the people who win will have one election cycle to serve in the general or, or they'll serve in the General Assembly for one session, but they'll also be part of the reapportionment session at the end of this year. And so in talking about these races, we should never forget that Democrats have made inroads and their Republican majority in the House particularly is uh, starting to, I don't know that it's jeopardized, but Democrats think they're moving in the right direction there. Right, right. Uh, 2020 was a little bit uh, uh, of a, a dud for Democrats in terms of, of, of yeah. picking up gains in the, in, the, in the legislature. But I would, I, would point, I, I would point you to the suburban uh, Atlanta race. Uh, uh, this is caused by the resignation of Burt Reeves, who's going to a position over at Georgia Tech. Uh, Reeves was was kind of he, he was uh, he was a floor leader for Brian Kemp, but he was also a, a a pretty staunch ally of of House Speaker David Ralston, and 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 one of those Republicans who 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 uh, in in back rooms might uh, might admit to being something of a moderate. Uh, uh, he he pu pushed through uh, 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 just a a, a very uh, a, a landmark bill on uh, uh, rewriting uh, Georgia's ad adoption law, and and it, it, what, so what this pretends it, you have you have uh, you have uh, very interesting dynamics in bo on both party sides. So so on the Republican side, will you have a a, a hardline Trumper? Or would you have somebody who falls more into to David Ralston's uh, uh, line uh, about uh, about trying to trying to look forward and look past 2020? On the Democratic side, uh, uh, you've already mentioned the, the, the well. First of all, you've already mentioned the Stacey Abrams uh, uh, Kelly Loeffler dynamic there. But on on the Democratic side, uh, the Fair Fight Action and the Stacey Abrams group has uh, endorsed Priscilla Smith, who ran against. Uh, 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 Bert reads in uh, in November and was 
soundly defeated, uh, only got 44% of the vote. Uh, the other Democrat is, is Sam Hensley, who has been, uh, uh, who's now backed by Roy Barnes, uh, the former governor. And those are kind of the two competing forces in, in the, uh, on the Democratic side with, uh, of course, Fair Fight Action having the, the upper hand. Charles, can you afford, yeah. given what uh, what Jim just said about Burke Reeves being something of a moderate, can you afford to be a Trump Republican in in that district at this point, or is it, it trending Democratic, and you've got to be a, you've got to be a Burke Reeves kind of moderate? Yeah, probably if you can be a, an anti-Trump or weak Trump Republican, that's the kind of district it could be. Now, a couple other things about these two contests is that. The tenure of the winners of each of these may be very short-lived. Uh, the one down in yeah. South Georgia, uh, we don't have the figures yet, but we know there are going to be fewer legislative seats remaining in South Georgia simply because of population shifts. And a person who has very little tenure, is this whoever wins in this district is going to have, that's a district that may well get eliminated altogether. And then in the, uh, the Cobb County seat, that could also – get caught up in redistricting in that if Republicans decide that they cannot protect 103 seats, which is the number they have in the House right now, and again, when they do the redistricting, Republicans are going to have control of it entirely. They're looking not just at 2022 or 2024. They're looking to come up with a plan that will work for them until 2032. And so Mm. particularly if uh, the Democrat wins this district or if the Democrat comes close, this might be a district that Republicans will say, yeah, we're going to lose this at some point in the decade. Let's just go ahead and give that one to the Democrats. Uh, and then one other thing, one last thing, is that, as Karen pointed out, um, there's going to be very low turnout in this election. There will be even lower turnout if it goes to a runoff, and there's a good chance that both of these will with multiple candidates. Uh, Georgia might want to think about extending the instant runoff, also known as ranked choice voting, which we've now built in for sending out ballots to our military stationed abroad, and thinking about let's do that for these special elections. You know, it'll save uh, the counties which have to do these, save them some money, and uh, we'll also get the results much quicker. So if this were playing out, say, in January, uh, you know, with instant runoff, we would know immediately who would be taking these seats, where if we went to a runoff, by the time the person got there, the session might about be over. So these would be a couple of things to think about. One final thing, yeah, Karen has a fabulous book on how uh, women who are in office serve as role models that recruit women to run for office. Um, uh, was, well, that was a great well, promotion. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And it is true. It is true that women uh, who have role models, they are encouraged to run again. And I would say, you know, just his point about redistricting and the idea that in that South Georgia district will change because especially in the House, they're going to lose some seats from South Georgia. And some research I have done shows that with redistricting, females are targeted, even female incumbents. They do get targeted in redistricting. Um, and so it will be interesting to see if in the 156 special election, if the woman wins or even wins the runoff, will she be an easy target, not just because she doesn't have seniority, but just, you know, the fact that they tend to be the ones that are, you know, not favored going into the session or... I might say to the Republicans, right, keep your female because that helps broaden your tent and it allows for more voices to be there. I'm really 
kind of I, I why am I surprised? Why do I continue to be surprised about things like the fact that women end up getting targeted uh, to lose their districts in special elections? But Karen, uh, that does kind of astonish me in twenty in the in the 21st century that continues to happen. Well, there's a host of factors. It's not just gender, but it just it does play out that they are ones that will lose seats usually. And All right. Too, um, by the way, Republican thing, but ahead. also happened to Democrats back a decade ago. Okay. Um, you know what? I think that's that that looks like something we ought to dig into in much more depth on a on another edition of Political Rewind, especially as we move toward a redistricting session. What imag- we imagine now is going to be pretty late. Uh, this year. Uh, Jim, we're going to get a break in, and and then I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this very, very contentious Southern Baptist Convention uh, annual meeting that's coming up. But before we do, real quick, Jim, uh, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, comes to Georgia later this week. She's here to promote the need for Georgians who haven't been vaccinated to do it now. The state still ranks in the bottom tier of uh, putting full vaccine shots in arms. In other words, there's only 32 percent, something like that, of people in Georgia who are fully vaccinated. And we're turning back millions of doses of the vaccine that are going to expire before they get to be used here, Jim. Right, right. And uh, we've we've got an AJC analysis that indicates that at the current rate, it will be uh, almost uh, almost uh, to the end of uh, 2021 before we get to that 70 percent rate that that Joe Biden was hoping to reach by uh, nationwide by uh, uh, by July 4th. Uh, It's again, it's this is this is not a state with an activist government. It is not chasing down people. Uh, to to get the vaccine, we have some groups doing that, but it's not programmatic, uh, and I think that's telling. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what we will watch for and talk more about the vice president's visit uh, as the week goes on. But I did want to get that in very quickly before we take our final break of the show and come back and talk about the Southern Baptists who are getting together for a what what promises to be a very difficult session this week. You're listening to Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, I guess in this age of toxic political polarization, it should come as no surprise to us that when the Southern Baptists meet for their annual conference in Nashville this week, they are fraught with tension over some uh, over the questions of whether the convention is bec- has become more racist. There have been efforts over the last few years by the leadership to demonize uh, critical race theory, uh, a teaching, uh, the embrace of Donald Trump, despite uh, some of what many people consider his r- racist policies, has divided the uh, convention even more. Uh, it's, it's, and we're going to see what happens when they try to elect a new president uh, from a group who are mostly in the most conservative wing of the convention. Jim? Uh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, and 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 behind this is is the uh, the very factual uh, 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 decline in uh, in Southern Baptist uh, population uh, over the last over the last decade. Uh, 
uh, and this is it, it's a it remains a an overwhelmingly white dis uh, white uh, uh, audience. Here's here's the the thing is it's it's. Uh, you, you say polarization has spread to the Southern Baptist Convention. I would, I, I, I would say, say that it was there from the beginning. Uh, I, I got my start at the AJC in large part as, 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 as a religion writer, uh, and I was very, very much uh, attuned to the, to the, the, the takeover over of the Southern Baptist <laughs> Convention. Uh, uh, in the in the er, the late seventies and early eighties, by uh, by fundamentalists, uh, if you'll remember, this is I mean uh, Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist. He ultimately mm-hmm. left the denomination, but it paralleled very very closely the rise of 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 the 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 right on the Republican side. Uh, uh, the 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 Baptist Convention and the Republican Party have pretty much been in lockstep. Uh, since since the 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 1990 well since Ronald Reagan uh really if you will and what republicans are facing now politically that their numbers are are their numbers are declining and they and and they are not getting the attention of 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 uh of young people or people of color that's the same that's the same problem that's faced in the uh, in the SBC right now and in in the SBC right now the, the, right now you specifically you have a very very uh hot argument over the role of women in in that uh in in that denomination which parallels what Karen was just talking about uh in the, in the previous segment about the role of women in the Republican party Karen well, I was going to say it, it truly to me is about the identity of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, you're talking about the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. where, as Jim mentioned, church going, uh, adherence to, you know, Protestant or a convention is declining among membership. But in the Wall Street Journal this weekend, um, J.D. Greer, who is leading the Southern Baptist, he gave a quote, and I think this really speaks to it, which is, quote, do we want to be a gospel people of a Southern or a Southern, I'm sorry, do we want to be a gospel people or a Southern Republican culture people? And then he goes on to say, we ought not make it hard for Democrats to come to Jesus. And I think for the Southern Baptist, it really is what is there going to be their mission? Are they gospel or are they political? And I think they're going to have to reckon with that this week as they vote on who they who they select to lead them forward. Well, Charles, weigh in on this uh, a little bit of a caveat. Uh, I'm an Episcopalian. I did go to the school that built itself as the northernmost Southern Baptist College in America, and we did have you know, mandatory chapel twice a week. I'm afraid I didn't pay a whole lot of attention because I was usually doing my German homework during that chapel uh, <laughs> meeting. But anyway, that, all that is a caveat. Um, you know, the the core constituency of the Republican Party in Georgia and pretty much across the South are white evangelicals. Now, white evangelical and Southern Baptists are not synonymous, but I think probably most white Southern Baptists would think of themselves as being evangelicals. And we know that white evangelicals vote 80, 85, even 90 percent Republicans. So, I mean, the fact that uh, that this is a conservative denomination, yeah, no no question at all about that. Uh, it's been pointed out that uh, the, the white membership is declining somewhat. There's some growth 
among black Southern Baptists. But even so, when it comes to this election uh, of a new leader, that black component is is tiny. It's about six or seven percent of the entire membership. So, you know, what, while some of its leaders are threatening to to leave the the body, uh, if it tilts too far conservative and choosing its new leader, only if it is a very very close contest is this uh, six to seven percent of the vote likely to be decisive. And clearly, we know that that can happen. We've seen it happen here in Georgia, and, and maybe it'll happen in this uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, um, uh, Bill. Uh, do remember that uh, Metro Atlanta has produced quite a number of uh, SBC presidents, uh, including, yep. I think, Brian Wright, who's been on the show before, Charles Stanley before him. Uh, the w- the leading uh, conservative candidate right now is, is, is a pastor named Mike Stone out of Blackshear, Georgia. So there's yet a, another a, another Georgia connection. Uh, and we'll, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's going to be interesting. Uh, by the way, just real quickly, uh, Charles, uh, another Episcopalian, Randall Balmer, who's a professor, at, he's an Episcopal priest and a professor in religion at Dartmouth College, wrote a really remarkable book, I thought, called Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. And the reason I mention it in this context is because what he points out, what he tracks in that book uh, is that Jimmy Carter left the convention, left the faith, uh, because f- f- it, at the beginning of his uh, campaign for president and through his tenure, the SBC got more and more conservative and began adopting positions that were diametrically opposed to what Carter thought they believed it in the first place. And uh, we've seen that that continuing track of conservatism to this day. Right. And, and then back when Carter ran in 76, he got strong support among white evangelicals. But by 1980, they pretty much decamped from him and were lined up behind Ronald yep. Reagan. Yep. They gave up on him uh, completely. Uh, and, and that was that, by the way, is a great book for people out there who want to read more about uh, Jimmy Carter, Redeemer, the Life of Jimmy Carter by uh, Randall Balmer. We are completely out of time for today's show, and I wish we weren't, because I'd love to talk to Karen Owen, Charles Bullock, and Jim Galloway for another hour at least on this show, but we'll have them all come back sometime pretty soon. Um, In the meantime, just real quickly, tomorrow we're going to take a look at how corporate America and corporate Georgia have dealt with pledges or at least promises of one sort or another they made to diversify their workplaces to begin helping educate their employees in diversity uh, issues, doing DEI training and the like. Um, We're going to look at the results of a survey that was done by a national organization that shows us a little bit about just that. We're also going to be joined by Robert Franklin, former president of Morehouse uh, College now at Emory University. It should be a great show. That's it for us. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you all tomorrow. In the meantime... Take care, stay healthy, Uh, be careful about being out there without a mask, wear it when you think it's important, Uh, when you don't, good for you. You're free if you're vaccinated, and if not, go get a vaccine. See you all tomorrow. 